Greetings and peace be upon you. The following is a conversation with Professor Davud Gosley, who is a professor at the University of Macau. He did his PhD in experimental psychology at the University of Toronto, and he, is, he has lived in several countries, including Turkey, Iran, and Malaysia. We spoke about book reading, well-being, and a bit of meta-psychology. Professor Gosley also has his own YouTube channel, and you will find a link to it down below in the show notes. Okay, so I've understood that you read quite a lot of books and I assume that you do this in order to find something or, uh, re or reach a certain state of emotions or something similar. And so my first question is, do you, th do you tend to find what you're looking for when, when, you're, when you read those, these books? And if not, how high should the probability be for you to find it, uh, for you to continue reading? Um. I think my attitude is more exploratory. I think I, I don't know exactly what it is I'm looking to, to find out or what state I, I will be in while I'm reading a book or at the end of a book. It's, it's more about exploration. Um, and the more unexpected it is, what I will end up experiencing, the better. I, I would say I'm most interested in learning about different styles of thinking, different styles of reasoning. Uh, you know, the way someone approaches reality, approaches other people, the, the style of thinking is important for me. Not, I don't have a very information-oriented approach to reading. I don't, I don't, I'm not primarily interested in extracting information out of a book, if that makes sense. Uh, it's more about the general worldview, the general style. Uh, that's what I'm interested in. Right, so even if you're interested in a certain style, I guess you're you're trying to, you know, I think that would be that would count as as some kind of a state at least. So how how high should mm -hmm. the probability be for you to? Or okay, so when you begin, how do you choose which book to read? Uh, there's usually some clues in the, what I've already read. It's very difficult. That's a very good question. It's it's difficult to know when the ball starts rolling. You know, there's already some momentum. Where does that momentum come from? You know, where do you, how do you choose your first book? I guess a, a teacher or a friend recommends a book and then the ball starts rolling. And before you know it, you have a long list of books that you like to read at some point. And um, I walk in bookstores and libraries and I, there are things that catch my, my interest. And um, there, there, are, there are certain things uh i don't know in terms of probability you ask your questions in the language of probability uh the things that i know know that um i want this to to be part of my reading experience and certain things that i want to avoid so for example if i if i get the sense that the author is marketing something to me or just wants to uh, present their self-image other than on my side just constantly saying that i'm an authority i will help you you know get <laughs> buy my program or buy into my uh, kind of philosophy or worldview if they if they have that kind of pushy uh, attitude that pushy style then I, I lose my interest very quickly um yeah i don't know probability i don't know where probability comes in um so so okay so if we would uh, if if there would be 
if you would, we we could tie your uh, your decision making process when it comes to you know reading books and choosing which books to read to a certain um, probability distribution. Let's say that we have a a coin that we toss or a coin with uh, like uh, one million sides or you know a normal distribution of some sort or any kind of probability distribution. Why do you think or do you think that that, that your own uh, your own um, the way of thinking uh, would lead to better quality books or better experiences uh, as compared to you know using this probability or, or a, a computer that would you know randomly with some kind of probability distribution uh, give you a book to read. Um, it can start with the it, it can start with some kind of distribution, but then you continue making a decision as you go on, as you, as you continue reading a book. And that, that's probably a different distribution. I think the distribution will, uh, you know, when, earlier when I, was, when I was younger, maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, the probability of picking a book was, was higher than the probability of continuing a book. Now it's the opposite. Now I'm, more like, I'm less likely to pick a book among all the available books, but I, uh, if I pick the book, then I'm more likely to finish it. I think it's because I'm, I've become more selective in the initial selection. The initial coin is more biased. In the past, the initial coin was unbiased, more unbiased. Uh, it was more inclusive. But then I would, uh, I would give up reading towards like the first 50 pages of a book. I would probably lose interest because I didn't know myself Maybe I didn't know my taste. I didn't know what I needed to read, but that's okay. I think that's representative of other people. To some extent, people get to know about themselves. We get to know about ourselves as we keep reading new books. I don't know. What do you think? Do you, do you, would you agree with that? I'm not so sure that we could be, that we could assume that we get wiser as, as we get older and that our choices Get uh, or our uh, yeah that we base our choices on a more solid ground. I don't know if we could automatically assume that, and I think that we often do that. Maybe maybe it's correct. It's not about wisdom. I think it's it's about becoming more narrow in our interests. So let's say I would read mathematics, philosophy, psychology, economics when I was younger. I would like sample these books, but now I'm basically just narrowly focused on one or two genres. I, I said it like that. Uh, and as we are talking now, I'm, I'm realizing that it's really not, uh, it, it wouldn't be fair in my mind to put all the books together. There's no such a thing in my mind as, as book. Uh, just like, it, it makes sense to say that animals, you, you put the label animal, and that refers to a whole bunch of different creatures. But animals differ. They are very, very different from each other. There's so much variation among the species. Books are like that too. There are different species of books. And they are so different that almost like they are, they are like different kind of creatures. There are some books that you, you want to use as like instruction, like cookbook is very different from a philosophical book, for example, or a book of poetry is very different from uh, an introduction to I don't know, some, some kind of psycho psychological topic. So books are very different. Uh, and I think we should also include that in our, in our thinking about reading and selection. 
Right. Right. So if, if we, okay, so there are different categories of books and they are very different, uh, but I, okay, so if, if we see those categories independently, I would, I personally feel that new books in the same categories only repeat what has been said in previous books. And maybe that's because of, you know, new generations maybe think differently or, or uh, yeah, need to consume information in a, in a, in a different way. Um, and sometimes maybe there are financial incentives, but how useful do you think that a, uh, you know, an, an emotional, emotion transfer device would be for communication so that, you know, from one generation to another, another, we could just pass information through like emotions. Mm. I mean, people can somehow tell other people that uh, when you listen to I don't know, Mozart, you should feel happy because if, if you study 10 years in classical music, then you will feel good about listening to high quality classical music. Is that what you mean? Like, because that kind of emotional response to a good piece of art or a, uh, I don't know, a good mathematical formula, something that is true, it takes a lot of years to realize that that's actually a beautiful, it's also beautiful. It's not just true and useful. It's also beautiful and it evokes a kind of positive emotion in the person. Is that what you mean? Or is it something else? Um, what, 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 okay, so music would be an example of a package of, 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 um, of uh, experiences that you know, the listener feels. And so, so the maker, the co composer of the music would feel a different way about those experiences. So, uh, you know, a 55 year old uh, female listener would feel, you know, one way about the experience of listening to that same track mm -hmm. and uh, someone, some, someone else would feel, you know, different. So everyone would feel different emotions. It wouldn't be mm -hmm. that everyone feels, feels the same emotions, but if we, okay, so hypothetically, hypothetically speaking, if we would have a device that could transfer, you know, the whole package of emotions uh, in some sense, and, you know, yeah, so this is just a thought experience. Would that be more, w would you prefer that over the current way of, you know, writing books over and over again? Uh, yeah, I think that there will be problems with it. I think there, there will be, there, there will be certain redundancies and they're also, it's a little bit forceful. I think it's, it, it doesn't recognize the, the freedom or the, the personal history of each person. The, the person has to go through a kind of history in order to appreciate something. And I don't think you can, we can, um, I can't imagine how we, we cut out that historical developmental uh, educational prerequisite for enjoyment or for appreciation. Um, and so that's that's one issue. The, the other issue is quite, quite related to what I just said. It's um, so that piece of music or a book, they are already, they are already, among other things, they are emotion transfer devices. If if I borrow your your phrase, they already try to do that. So if you put another shortcut, you say, okay, this is the this is the music or this is the book, but at, also accompanying it, let's let's give something else that dictates the kind of emotion that you're supposed to feel. <laughs> it's a little bit pushy. I mean, um, I wouldn't want, even if, if that is available, I wouldn't want to use that emotional tra transfer device. I would just, I, I would prefer to just face the work itself. I want to be in communication with the work directly. 
not with the way I'm supposed to feel. Because sometimes the creator has one thing in their mind. The author has one thing in their mind. And I want to disagree with that. I don't want to, I don't want to feel the, the way the author wants me to feel. I want to be, I want to set the author aside, the creator. I don't, I don't care what the creator uh, wants me to feel. Um, I, I want to be in relationship with the work. Uh, so for, for that reason, I would, even if it is available, I wouldn't recommend or I wouldn't use these devices. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, so so even though I understand that, that okay, everyone, uh, okay, so this is a different kind of question. So everyone isn't a utilitarian. So some people are more on the deontological side and, and all of that stuff. But still, when um, when people argue for different ideologies and religions, People usually do that, uh, and they in their arguments they usually refer to consequences. So, uh, mm. yeah, of some. So they, even though some ideologies uh, are not uh, utilitarian at all, they, they they still refer to you know the good consequences of their their respective ideologies. And so mm -hmm. if uh, and you know the problem is that different people perceive. Uh, well-being uh, and the and good consequences uh, they define them dif define these things differently and that's uh, often why different people uh, prefer different ideologies because they think that a certain ideology would lead to a certain certain form of well-being that is more in line with their definition um, so if we would have a emotional so, so if we would use this emotion device and uh, and you know like simulate the 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 emotion the state of well-being that you would feel if you would adhere to some certain ideology and then inject that uh, uh, that state into or or you know let people experience that for a certain time do you think that we all would agree on uh, adhering to a certain ideology then yeah uh, it might have some consequence in the, in the way people debate. But then we will notice that that emotion is something that lives in the instant. It is in the moment. It's a very, it's a fleeting, very short-term kind of experience. Uh, and people can recognize that even though they feel something right now, it might not be sustainable. Uh, tomorrow they might have, they might, they might feel the opposite if the consequence is not long lasting, if the consequence of your, their decision is not long lasting. So even, uh, so let's say two people are debating and one of them brings in that emotion and say, okay, let me show you how you will feel if you decide in the way I prescribe. And the person will feel good after they try the emotion, but then they will, they will not trust the emotion. They will not trust that it will last or they will not trust that the cost that, is, that has gone into creating the emotion is, is worth it. Um, so for those reasons, it will have, it might have some consequence, but it, it, it might also be limited, probably be limited. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so if you move on from, from, uh, from emotions and then, uh, deep, deeper, uh, deep, deeper into arguments themselves, um, when discussing complex questions in society, we are, we often argue back and forth and these debates. You know, they can go on forever. It seems like it's only time and computing power that that you know is limiting uh, debaters. So, in your everyday decision, decisions in life, how do you measure uh, the strength of 
inductive arguments? Do you have any specific criteria? Um, interesting. Uh, I would say the strength. Uh, I I don't feel that I don't find a need to to measure the strength of an inductive argument because uh, an inductive argument, even if it is very strong, it, it might still it, it might still prove to be wrong. Um, I think it has to do with it's the strength of an argument that is inductive. It has to do with uh, whether or not the person who is giving the argument has considered the best case scenario and the worst case scenario. So a person who is using an argument and only considering one possible outcome, only considering the best case scenario, no matter how strong their argument is, no matter how much evidence they have based their argument, because they are only considering the best case scenario, there is a big limitation to their thinking. They should also consider the worst case scenario. What if the induction is, um, what if the, the inductively predicted outcome com doesn't come, come true? So the worst case scenario, are they prepared for that? Are, are we prepared for that? And if yes, if, if alternatives are considered, then I would see that as a, as a stronger position. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this reminds me of decision trees where you have different weights to different uh, mm -hmm. decisions and then you have different probabilities and you multiply them. Yeah, that, yeah, but you mentioned that you don't really need, feel the need to measure the strength of inductive arguments in your everyday, everyday life. But mm -hmm. then I think that in many situations, we, we okay, so we can't deduce, make many decisions in our everyday lives based on pure deduct deduction. And so often, at least I feel that there are, there are often, you know, two opposing inductive arguments and then you have to, to measure which is stronger and then you have to make a decision. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like a decision tree. Um, yeah. so wouldn't yeah. you agree with that? I agree with you. Uh, what I, what I meant was that it's more categorical for me. It's, it, it's more a matter of like yes or no, rather than degrees. It's, it's not a matter of measurement. So it's a matter of, it, it's more simplistic. I guess the way I experience it is I use categories, not numbers. How do you interpret the leap of faith? And do you think that it is necessary? Um, leap of faith, I think is more common than we, it's a very common phenomenon in everyday life. Every time uh, we try to achieve something, we act and we assume that our act is going to be successful. Every time we trust another person and we assume that our trust is not going to be betrayed, these are all leaps of faith. It's, it's when, whenever the assumption or the faith in a presupposition, every time that assumption is part of, the, part of what brings about the outcome, so part of what creates an event is my faith in the, in the, in the event, my event in the the possibility of the event so if i trust you then things are going to work out if i trust my ability it's going to work out in that very general form um i think it's it's necessary it's a necessary component of successful living being alive but of course the leap of faith has a more has a more specific definition to uh, in a religious context um is that is that closer to what you mean, or did you mean it in that general sense? I mean, I meant in that general sense. Um, 
but then okay so, so do you think that different people could have different you know genetical pre pre you know or do you think that uh, the different people could be uh, could have different tendencies to you know in terms of how big leaps of faith they they tend to make mm. yeah yes yes and sometimes they need to justify their leaps to to one another sometimes i have to justify let's say i i'm asking for a lot of money to do a kind of research and the money is a lot so it's a big leap <laughs> and it might not work out so i have to provide a rationale that my leap of faith is actually reasonable it's not completely based on imagination and optimism it is still a leap of faith but it's there's there's still less risk involved but it's uh it's not guaranteed but but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have to be reasonable we can still be reasonable in our leaps and the, the larger the leaps are the more other people want us to justify them for, for for them do you think it could be that genetics could play a big role here or do you think it's mostly environment for the big role for the leaps leaps of faith yeah yeah for determining how big leaps of faith you are you are you know you 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 are you, you tend to make mm. I don't know. It might depend on how fast people want to see change. You know, the fastest the fastest way would be revolutionary. You know, that people call it revolution, but that the highest risk also comes with revolutionary acts. Um, it it could be obviously it has something to do with the environment, but also with the desire of agents in that environment. Sometimes people are they have a sense of urgency. They want to see change faster, and uh, sometimes they are more strategic. Uh, I, I used to play chess a lot when I was younger, and uh, this we have a distinction between tactical play, which is very short term, which is more based on leaps, and a strategic play, which is based on very slow, patient maneuvering. And with the same moment in a game of chess, two people might respond differently. One person might go with a large leap. The other person might, in the same environment, go with a small leap of faith. So it depends on temperaments too. Okay, so let's turn to the leap of faith in a religious context as well. Mm -hmm. Then, so I saw that yesterday you had uh, you, you made a blog po uh, post on your uh, on your website where you said that most discourse about atheism that you've heard comes from uh, within a theistic paradigm, and you thought that. They, they, uh, that they haven't, uh, most theists ha haven't, you know, engaged uh, probably with atheism uh, or, or not to the extent so that, uh, to an extent that they can um, understand it. Um, so do you think that there is a fundamental difference between how atheists and theists navigate the world? Um, so this might be, this might be a little bit controversial, but uh, actually I very seldom meet people who are really atheists. And I, I include people like the, the new atheist movement uh, leaders like Richard Dawkins. To me, the way he talks, his discourse, and the way he responds to those typical questions. That I, I, I wrote a set of questions that people ask atheists, like, what is the meaning of life now that there is no God? You know, Dawkins is still kind of still in that, in that phase of responding to those questions. Like, he wants to say that the the meaning of life is, you know, scientific discovery. That's the beauty in the universe. That's so he's he's just filling that gap of uh, that that he sees that God 
once was there was had that status. He's just replacing it with something else. He's not changing his form of thinking. He's not really getting into a new paradigm. That's why he's he has so much concern with um, that that form of debate with between theism and atheism. And that debate, the way I see that debate, it is a fundamentally theistic debate. It's not an atheistic debate. Because the way I see atheistic debates would be uh, its form will not be about, okay, so we, what is going to, what are we going to seek outside human life that is going to justify us? Who, who, who should we serve? Like, where should we get our meaning? It, it, it will be more about uh, questions about creation. What should we create? What kind of discourse should we, should we create? What kind of art? What kind of philosophy? What kind of science and why? It, it has to be much more responsible and it will be, you know, funny enough, I would say that atheism will have to eventually turn back to religion and, and recognize the kind of service that religion has done and will do, uh, kind of irreplaceable service, uh, and the, the kind of experiences that it has opened up. So that, for me, that would be the path of atheism. It will not be the path of, that, that, that I currently see. I, th I think, I, I, okay, yeah, think go ahead. I think I got far from your question. Um, <laughs> no, no, it was a very good answer. But do you think that there is anyone who is a genuine atheist then, or is it, or, 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 or every, uh, every, you know, are all these atheistic groups just uh, and movements just, you know, f fake as it were? Is it anyone that falls into your definition of atheism? Unfortunately, the ones that I see in, in public sphere, in people who become famous, like Dawkins, like. Lawrence Krauss, Krauss, especially the, the scientific ones who do the popularization of science and then they debate against uh, religions too. Those are, uh, they, they all fall into the problematic category. The ones that I, I'm inspired by, the authors that I've been recently reading, like the French philosopher Gilles Deleuze, uh, the, the Czech French writer Milan Kundera, these are, for me, or Nietzsche, these are genuine, <laughs> that sounds very arrogant of me to say, but I really feel atheism in them. Like I really feel like they have truly given up on a certain set of questions, certain set of theistic questions. And they are trying to replace one kind of questions with a, with a new kind of question, a new project for humanity okay so what implications do you think that that has for 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 example nietzsche and, and the others that you've mentioned you know what does that lead to it leads to more responsibility and less confidence um and more an attempt to think with other people not alone because we accept that we are we have to figure figure out what problems we should pursue, what, what questions we should ask. And we, we realize that together we, will, we, can be, we can be able to ask better questions, find better answers. So that confidence in individuality will probably be reduced. Um, education will become more important. Yeah, that's that, these kinds of tweaks in the way we relate to each other, in the way we relate to traditions. And the way we think about the future, you know, there's no, if you really truly believe that there's no plan for us, that our future is open or 
yeah, we have the kind of insecurity. We don't have a plan. Like there's no, if there is no divine plan ahead of us, then we probably think differently. Okay, so let's let's uh, move on to uh, a different kind of question, or maybe it's yeah, it's related, but it's not very directly related to mm-hmm. this. Um, what, what links can you see between dualism, non-dualism, and uh, idealism versus materialism? Um, what is the link? Do you mean similarity? Like, what is the similarity between dualism or how? Yeah, because I've seen a lot of people, you know. Uh, say that so material that they um that either one leads to the other or one is the symptom of the other or that yeah they are related in some way you know yeah it's flexible right um i think that's that's an interesting topic to think about i think the desire of uh you know the, the moment you adopt a dualistic framework let's say the dualism between body and mind or body and soul or dualism between the sensory domain, what we experience and the domain of intellect and reasoning. The moment we have these dualisms, immediately we we generate the desire to move in the non-dual direction. And at the same time, in a complementary way, when we have a non-dualist framework, when we say it's it's all one thing, then we are also generating the desire to move in the dualistic tendencies to explain what, why these dualisms or these distinctions are expressed. Why do they come about? So I see them as tendencies. There's a dualistic tendency, which is basically, or maybe more than dualism, maybe pluralism, the tendency to, to distinguish, to, to make useful distinctions among to introduce categories and concepts that usefully divide our experience, our functions into different categories. So that's a, that's a tendency of dualism. And then we also have a tendency to find relationships and connections and see continuity. So these two tendencies, when one of them is stronger, we see dualism and the other one is stronger, we see non-dualism, but the, the tendencies are, I think present in almost all systems of thought. And then they become responses to each other. Non-dualism becomes a response to the dominance of dualism and vice versa. Idealism and materialism are more similar to each other because they they are both, to me, they seem both non-dualistic. They both say, so the idealism says it's all, all we have is a domain of ideas and thoughts. And materialism is, has a similar stance, just says that the, all we have is matter. They both recognize uh, these categories of form and matter, and then they make a decision. One of them makes a decision that form is, has reality. The other one says that matter has reality. But they, that presupposition they share in advance. Um, so, yes, yeah, so, some people argue that... that um, more religious people turn or have a tendency to be idealists, mm. and they and they refer to Marx and say that that atheists uh, tend to be materialists. Was Marx a genuine atheist uh, according to your definition? Yeah, interesting. Uh, <laughs> if I have to be, if if I want to be consistent, I have to say no. 
and he had a very strong predestination idea. Uh, history for him had a had an end point or had a he was moving towards a, a pre, predetermined pre, form as as human life was going on. And uh, he has, you know, his materialism is very special. He's, his materialism is, a, is an anchor, is an anchor to his idealism. So he wants to trace ideas and explain them, account for them in terms of the material structures. So he's, uh, in that sense, he is, um, he's putting the burden of explanation on the side of matter. But of course, what he is really interested in is the domain of ideas and the domain of form and thought and that domain where we talk about history and events, meaningful events. But, you know, the determination, this concept of determination in, in the last instance, that in the last instance, the cause of things, why things happen, or why we have certain thoughts and not other thoughts, why we come up with certain ideas, some theories and not other theories, that sh should be traced into material structures. That's was, that was his materialism. Uh, his materialism should be distinguished from much simpler, simple-minded materialism of some neuroscientists, for example, in our contemporaries, contemporaries science, where they say, oh, there's no uh, there's no mind. It's just neurophysiological activity. That's that's very different. That's Marx is much more nuanced and has a much much more grand project compared to a neuroscientist's reductive materialism. So, uh, in, in in that sense, just last one last sentence, I wanted to say that Marx belongs to you know the German idealist tradition. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, we should remember that. We should keep that in mind. And he was a student of Hegel. Mm. He was not a like a student of brain science that's it yeah but many people say that okay so even though he was a student of hegel many people say that that was what differentiated the two that hegel was an idealist and that yeah, many people say that yeah they think that he they define him as atheist mm -hmm. while they think that marx was a quite rebellious and became a materialist right right yeah i see that i see the point in that in that argument too Right, so now we've spoken about your uh, uh, definition of atheism. So now maybe we could turn to uh, a question pertaining to your definition of theism. Mm -hmm. So do you think that the personification of God is coherent with the ideologies of the major religions? Um, I'm not sure if I'm equipped to answer this question, even though I'm interested in it. I'm, But the, the one thing I detected in your question was that ideology and religion, you don't separate those two. For me, those are separate. We should uh, separate ideology from religion. To me, ideology is a simplified version of a religion. So I imagine the first generation of a religion when there's a prophet and the people who met the prophet, and then the second generation, third generation, fourth generation. And then the more we move in, uh, down those generational lines, the simpler the ideas become, the ideas end up getting becoming more rigid and fixed. And then some people feel very passionately about them and they think that if somebody doesn't agree with them, they, they should be killed or you know, go on crusades. So that ideology is, a, is that later form of a religion that is less flexible, less alive, less responsive to differences. I don't know how you think about 
these two religion and ideology um no i i i agree but then okay so the development of a religion into ideologies as time goes on from a prophet okay, why what do you think that process stems from is it that yeah yeah where does it stem from can you and would you describe it as you know thermodynamically like entropy or would you yeah entropy how, how would you i would describe it in terms of the distinction between finite and infinite game this is something i learned from james Carr's book james Carr has a very nice short book called finite and infinite games and one of the differences between the two kinds of games is that in the infinite game which i see as a religion is an infinite game it 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 continues to evolve and respond to other people it, it continues to be inclusive the the purpose the goal of a religion is not excluding people but to including as many people in it as possible every religion wants to uh, have new members have, have new members who convert and come in from outside it doesn't want to attack people who are outside it and to, to destroy them so that's a feature of an infinite game so over time um, it can turn into a finite game which is an ideology and a, the purpose of a finite game is to to win against com competition to win against uh, competing religions or competing forms of thought or thoughts or, or people who are not serious about religion at all they don't belong to any religious community so it turns rigid it maybe becomes insecure about its own continuation maybe it becomes mixed up too much with politics and statesmanship then it becomes about it, it turns into finite which is a finite game works under the assumption of limited resources and we have to fight for limited resources I, we cannot you and i cannot both win therefore we should fight and figure out who is the winner <laughs> so, and, and then the game ends when we reach then we figure out who is the winner so in my mind that religion which is initially an infinite game and supposed to remain an infinite game when it turns into a finite game about competition and winning and losing and turns into ideology and it turns into uh, uh, the practice of judging other people so who is good who's bad who's inside who's outside it's a very uh, easily this way of thinking very easily turns hostile because it yeah it's, it's about division lines now your question was about personification of god let's talk about that a little bit <laughs> do you mean i want to just understand the question do you mean a person with a body or not necessarily with the body just personification hmm. well i mean like referring to to it as a consciousness in the same way that you refer to human consciousness mm -hmm. or at least in a comparable way yeah exactly the way i'm familiar with religion is a personification is a big part of it a person personification a, a consciousness can plan can create can evaluate can love can uh, you know these are all attributes of a person that's why somebody like spinoza doesn't accept any of these attributes doesn't doesn't attribute any emotion to god doesn't attribute any any desire any plan it's just pure existence but um seems in major religion in major monotheistic religions i think personification is a in my understanding is a big part 
and it makes them interesting. Yes. So, so many people they say that okay. So a lot of people when they argue for for objective morality, or and they say that morality is objective, then they often refer to God, and then then on the other hand they refer to God in the same way or in a comparable way with uh, uh, how they re- refer to human consciousness. So, yeah, and, and you said that, okay, so a, a conscious being can do a certain set of things that non-conscious beings cannot do. But then, okay, so if, if, if there was some, if we wouldn't model uh, God as a conscious being comparable to ourselves and just see the morality that stems from uh, or that God has decided as, you know, like the, the answers to math questions. Uh, do you think that would make a difference or do you think, yeah, I think it would make a difference, but yeah, why do you think that it's so important for people to have a con- uh, to, to, to have another conscious being regis- re- register their deeds? To me, uh, my own theistic tendencies have a, have a response to that question and that is about relationship. A, a conscious being, one of the things that we are able to do is we can enter into relationship with other conscious being in a way that cannot happen in, with relationship to, to a formula. So if I have a process of arriving at the right decision, that's one thing. I, I have a relationship to that insight, to that piece of truth. But if there's a person with whom I'm negotiating, I have a very different relationship with, a, with, a pers- with that other the person on the other side, the being on the other side, assuming that it's a conscious being. That makes things very, qualitatively makes things very different. Um, but of course, it's the right thing to do if it's, if it's all about making the right decision. It all boils down to what you said. It's a process of arriving in a justifiable way, in a, in a way that is reasonable, that can be defended on rational grounds. It all boils down to that process. Then we don't really need that personification of a deity. We, we only need to have a God, be in a relationship with that God. That becomes important when we want to evolve and we want to focus on, okay, I want to evolve. I want to be educated into the kind of person who always is likely to make good decisions. and. If my goal is that, if my goal is the development of a character, then it can be facilitated with the right relationships, with teachers, with uh, people that I can imitate and can follow and, and God and the ultimate, ultimate principle. So it, it becomes, it, yeah, it changes, it becomes, uh, the, the project, ethical project becomes a little bit different. Okay, so, so, so this has to do with virtue ethics, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and um, okay, so before we spoke about an emotional, emotion transfer device, and we said that, okay, we could maybe derive some kind of a marker for well-being and then let people experience it and, and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, um, yeah, I've asked this question for, to many other of the guests, and they, the, the question that I ask is, um, could we derive a marker for well-being that we could use in public policy uh, <laughs> by linking biomarker and behavioral data? And mm-hmm. then they, the, the problem is always that 
we cannot it would be a circular it would have to be like a, a circular argument that you first define well-being then you link biomarking behavioral data to derive that that uh, a marker that is co- coherent with your your definition mm-hmm. so yeah it's impossible to 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 avoid a circular uh, circular argument in that case right. so and, and, and many people argue that virtue, uh, virtue ethics is also a kind of a circular argument so you, you you're just trying to imitate what you think is a, a good person and then you have a, a you already have a definition of a good person if you understand what i mean mm-hmm. but do you think that these circular systems are are beneficial uh, yes i think they are the circular system are are very good way to to start because let's say that you and i are are um imitating each other let's say i i'm trying to imitate you and do everything the way you do it's it's very circular what am i doing i'm doing what you are doing because i'm i why because i'm imitating you so we go on for a while we go on for a week or two weeks or three weeks and after a while suddenly one day you are absent and in your absence now i have to continue the circle on my own I have to now replace you with my imagined version of you. So this is where the circle now suddenly becomes incomplete. It's, and we prepare for that moment. I think the, the ethical education of a person, starting with teachers, starting with maybe a, some kind of disciplinary upbringing, we start with a full circle. We start with a tautology, as you said, it's a circularity. They refer to each other, both sides refer to each other. But after a while, the circle gets broken and you enter into situations where you don't have the benefit of tautology. And I think in that moment, then the agent who is alone has to rely on their imagination, rely on the, what they have learned so far and f- complete the circle. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's like from generation to generation in some sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's how we internalize uh, the teaching of someone, uh, a teacher or a father figure, or right. Okay, so, so so before we spoke about infinite games, and we we spoke on a macro level about turning infinite games to finite games, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, in the previous episode, I spoke with. Uh, uh, an econ- uh, economist, and we spoke about infinite games and turning them into finite games, or the tendency of turning them into finite games on a micro level. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you uh, we we mentioned infinite games and finite games in the context of of the the evolution of a religion. Mm. Um, so, okay, so, so how do you where do you how do you see what, what link do you think there is between this? Uh, a tendency to turn the infinite game into a finite game on the macro level, you know, in terms of religion and turning religion into ideology and winning over other religions. Uh, how do you think? Do you think that stems from, uh, or could stem from, you know, the the individual tendency to turn infinite games into finite games, which is partly what religious ideologies or, or religions build on. So, for example, the uh, the conception of you know uh, an afterlife and stuff that that pertains to. You know the infinite tendency, uh, the, the the individual's tendency to to turn infinite games into finite games. Mm. I think that desires get mixed up with each other. Uh, I think that people we might sometimes give in to or submit to the desire, some kind of desire to be 
to feel superior, to feel power over other people. Uh, why? Because we are insecure. It's just like how a business wants to continue to grow, just like perpetual growth, uh, just out of control with the cost on, on its environment. I think when those desires, the desire for power, control, they get out of hand and it, there's a perception of limited resources and a finite game also wants to, people who play a finite game want to find the, the master player, somebody who wins at all games over everybody, every other player. And they can, by doing that, they basically exit the game. And they give this magisterial speech and everybody has to be quiet. Everybody else has to be quiet. So it, they are very different worldviews. Um, one of them is infinite game is uh, connected to something else we already talked about, which is that leap of faith or the trust in each other that if I let go of my control right now, if I have some control in, in my moves in the game or in my in my power in a game, I don't hold on to it. I give it to somebody else. I pass it over to somebody else because I have trust that that will continue. And that will not result in some disaster or <laughs> in my own destruction. I think trust and faith in humanity, that's, that's part of it. But in general, I don't know. It's, uh, it's very mysterious why they turn into each other. Speaking of the leap of faith and and uh, yes, what percentage of the world's population do you think uh, would accept and abide by a coherent and somewhat fair axiomatic system if that would mean that they would lose a lot of material possessions? Mm -hmm. This also pertains to, you know, the idealism versus materialism thing. Right, right. Mm -hmm. I would say this is some form of, some social form of the prisoner's dilemma situation. Yeah. I think if they, if everybody knows that everybody else is going to be in the same situation, I think the probability will be much higher than if they have to start that movement. <laughs> so if they are, if they're going to be the first 10 people who adopt this lifestyle and by adopting that lifestyle, they are going to try to change the minds of other people. And then I think that it will be more difficult to convince people, but I don't know. I, I really don't know. It also has to do with how much conviction they feel with, with those axioms. I don't, I don't personally think that we need that much material stuff to, for, for living happily. I would be willing to, to join that program myself personally, but uh, first I have to be convinced. <laughs> right. Okay. So is there any variable that you, you can pinpoint and say that you want to maximize or minimize in life? A community, I think, the sense of community, uh, having peers, peers that can can provide feedback, criticism when necessary, uh, encouragement, and part of that is true friendship. You know, friendship of virtue. Uh, yeah, I think that for me, that's that has priority. Yeah. Okay. So before we talked about, you know, or I asked you whether you think that there is any fundamental difference between atheists and theists. Do you think that there will be a difference between them when it comes to, you know, choosing a variable to maximize or minimize? Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes people say that atheists just care about pleasure because that that's a logical consequence of atheism, or 
just living a happy 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 life on this time around this this is the only life that uh, we think we have but i don't agree with that i think it's very possible that we we find more similarity between uh, atheists and theists in their most cultivated form of that life if it is based on an appreciation of what it means to be human what it means to be a good human uh, i mean look at let's say a very ethical scholarly simple life of an atheist uh, and on the one hand uh, the simple ethical like a monastic scholarly life of a monk I mean, I, for me, there's, there's so much similarity between those two. The way, for example, Spinoza, and, and many people called Spinoza an atheist. That's why they banned him from his community, they excommunicated him. Uh, but his life was so monastic. He was living like a monk, very simple. Uh, I think there, there will be a lot of more similarity if they are based on truth, honesty, and an, an appreciation of what it means to be human i mean humanity itself is so rich it's such a rich field of inspiration and learning and mystery uh, that just by the attempts to learn about what it means to be human atheists can live a life that resembles the life of a, uh, of people in a monastery but that's my belief um so so this you know uh, the, the the subject of of a leap of faith. I think that you, okay. So we, we discussed religious uh, the religious context, and we also discussed the more general uh, context. But you know, I wanted to, to discuss this in the context of of you know obedience and you know uh, it could be obedience to governments, obedience to norms. So you know, so if one isn't an an anarchist, one understands the need of authority and obedience. So you need to have it to some extent, at least. So do you think that we have the the ability to simulate uh, which hierarchy of authorities we should establish? Or do you think that we need to make a very big leap of, that every one of us has to, to, to make a very big leap of, of faith? Hmm. Uh, first, I would say that anarchism is not about absence of authority. That's a I mean that's a very common that's a very common way to think about anarchism. They equate it with the desire for anarchy, for the absence of order and absence of authority. But anarchism, as a very, uh, as a very like a rigorous tradition, both scholarly and practical tradition, it's about being critical of authority and seeking justification for authority. Authority has to be justified. So in an anarchist system, medical doctors still have have their authority, of course. They, they do the surgery, they're, they're, they diagnose and prescribe medications. And, you know, teachers also have authority, but it's an authority that is um, justified and maintained based on ongoing reason and negotiation. And what is special about democratic countries isn't really their specific leaders. Uh, that's, to me, that's the main point that the, their system, this democratic system, is designed such that a bad leader cannot destroy it. it the system protects itself in the long term against uh, bad leaders. I mean, the protection is not perfect, but it, at least it has certain measures in place. In a, it's a sign of a bad system 
that individuals can become too important, can, can have effects that cannot be undone. Uh, uh, so they, they, an individual can come in and damage and a system that is, that, that damage is so long lasting. That, that's what I see is the, as a major difference between democratic systems and non-democratic systems. I mean, a movement towards democracy and power is distributed for good or bad, you know, power is distributed and that distribution is protected. The moment we lose that distribution, uh, yeah, sorry, the moment we, yeah, the moment we, uh, we cut that distribution, we let power go into just a very small part of society, then it cannot move back. Usually uh, history shows that we cannot move back, back to, the, to, the, to the people. It's, it tends to stay in a small space, in a small portion of a society. So some people would argue that even in democracies, you know, the, the, the power is held by a small portion of society mm -hmm. and that, you know, democracy is just uh, some kind of, so people speak of, you know, uh, Illuminati and these like intelligence agencies and the power of, you know, uh, and like uh, the secret uh, groups behind governments and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Do you think that, and you said that countries cannot destroy themselves that are democratic. Mm -hmm. Do you think that, uh, do you think it's because of the, the this small portion of people <laughs> or do you think that it is because of a larger scale uh, uh, mechanism uh, i think that protection uh, as i say it's not perfect they can destroy themselves but it takes longer and uh, we should also we should think about it not only in terms of power and control but also in terms of education and the kind of person who lives in a democratic community it's a different person and it, the, the reason why democracy is an ongoing project is because we that person that ordinary person uh, the ordinary human being has to be continually protected and informed and educated generation after generation. Uh, so that if the cycle, again, if the cycle stops, then of course it, the projects will fail, but it's a very multidimensional ongoing project and non-democracy seems more stable because power stays in place and then other people are controlled. They, they all have to submit and things are easier for everybody involved. But the distribution of power is very difficult and difficult to maintain because it takes a lot of energy, takes a lot of like educational energy and effort uh, to cultivate the kind of person who wants that responsibility, the responsibility of political participation. Uh, and it can go out of hand. You're right. It can't go out of hand. It can be deceived. It can go back. Deceptively into the hands of the few, but uh, we have to stay optimistic. I think I, I'd rather be deceived and think that I'm living in a democratic country than at, at least I'm deceived. At least I have a false belief that I have some power than to just be very honestly living in a, a non-democratic dictatorship. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. So, do, do you think that it's more important for a model to be epistemically correct or to be efficient. So in yours, I think, yeah, uh, would it be correct to say that you think it's more important for it to be efficient? Um, not, not necessarily. I mean, efficient 
because if uh, did, did you do you ask that because I said I'd rather live under the false pretense of democracy. Than, yeah, yeah, that, exactly. That's because uh, if I have that false belief, at least I can I can be proven wrong at some point, and that that the value of democracy is not foreign to me. That I say, oh, those people were lying, but I still have the right values. Uh, it's not because of if it's efficiency. It's because of even if, uh, let's say in a, in a relationship or in a friendship, if two people trust each other and one person is betraying the other one, uh, it's still better for that, for the trust to exist, even if the, person, the other person is wrong, but at least they still continue to believe in the value of trust. And when they find out that they are wrong, then uh, they can correct, correct their behavior and their relationships. But that's what I mean. I mean, when we are wrong about certain things, we still hold on to the right values. We are not letting go and falling into cynicism. Uh, so it's not, it doesn't map onto the, the distinction between efficiency and uh, what is the other one? Effectiveness. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, so now we, 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 uh, we spoke about, you know, dictatorships versus demo democracies and we spoke about infinite games versus finite games mm -hmm. and you know all of these uh, these sets of ideas or phenomenon these could be you know, so if we imagine a big cloud of ideas we could we could you know mark these and then we could we could see them as opposite poles and um, yeah so what i'm referring to here is just you know uh, the hegelian dialectic and thesis uh, the thesis and synthesis. Um, right. Do you think th that way of reasoning? Do you think that Hegelian dialectical logic is better than using statistical inference in your own field of psychology? It it depends. Uh, depends on interests and goals. Psych psychologists can have different goals. Some goals are about uh, figuring out measurements, relationships between variables, and establishing. Uh, establishing relationships, relationships between those variables that psychologists themselves have defined. Uh, dialectical logic comes in, comes in when we are interested in understanding process. For example, a single case. Uh, that single case could be a person, a, a relationship, or a group, a community. When we are interested in one thing and its continuity, how it unfolds and develops over time, then we have to use it something like a dialectical logic. But when we are interested in developing axioms and abstract, abstract rules, then we need, probably we need something closer to inferential statistics. In psychology, I think the value of inferential statistics is extremely limited. And despite its popularity, I think that's why psychology has turned into just doing more like demograph the demographic demographic research than like real psychology psycho psychological research psychologists can like take data and do some statistical analysis on the on the data they, they find like relationships between self esteem and depression and and socioeconomic status and i don't know covid-19 prevalence but that that applies in a given context in a given society it doesn't necessarily go beyond that context. That's why I'm referring to it as demo demographic research. Hmm. It's not really psychology. 
So we were earlier speaking about, speaking about well-being, and so and you know pertaining to this question that I have uh, that I ask you now about uh, Hegelian dialectic, you know this ties into you know holism, and I saw a YouTube clip of yours where you were discussing an article. Uh, written by Professor, Professor Dario Kirpan, mm-hmm. who I had uh, as a guest in episode 12. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you, you mentioned that, um, yeah, that, that it's important to, not, to, to, to also keep in mind, you know, holistic perspectives mm-hmm. and not, you know, just breaking everything into like, uh, uh, and, you know, not, not just uh, falling to logical atomism the, uh, the whole time. Mm-hmm. So, uh, um, and this also ties into uh, a, uh, so, so I was told by someone that he thinks that you can maximize well-being by maximizing variation and that you need to, uh, and so what I would do is to, to see different uh, activities that one, one is engaged in or different ideas that one is engaged in, break the, the, that down, uh, those down into components and then see which components have been, um, need, need to be varied because, you know, which components have, you know, been constant for a certain amount of time. And then one has to, to you know, change those uh, uh, by changing activities so that that certain component is changed. But that, that, but then the problem was that you can get into an infinite regress of components. So you can break things down into to as many components as you want, and it's impossible to 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 measure everything. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was uh, partly what I was thinking of when I was asking the question of whether we should use Hegelian dialectical logic mm-hmm. or statistical inference in psychology. I see. I see. I think in theory you're right. There's a but that's. Uh, that's a theoretical question. That's a theoretical problem. I think in reality, if you if you remain in touch with with the facts of life, that is less likely to become a pressing problem. That's my that's my view at the, at the moment. Right. Okay. So now we have we have discussed uh, a lot of questions, and we have also discussed well being and our definitions of well being, our definitions of atheism, our definitions of many things, and that is all tied to our current emotions. Why do you think that our instantaneous feelings have such an impact on our entire outlook on life as a whole, even though we know that our emotions and outlooks will change, uh, you know, after a certain amount of time? Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, how, how can we believe something we know that we are going to change our mind on, basically? Yeah, that's, that's probably because the way feelings and moods present themselves, they have a, they have a very... Uh, totalizing force with them. It's like they are very convincing. An emotion or a, a mood, a mood, a sad mood or a joyful mood isn't just about now. It's, it's something that completely overwhelms the person's attitude, especially if it is strong. Uh, the person will find it very difficult to believe anything else, any other view that is inconsistent with that, with that mood. It takes a lot of work to 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 be able to be a little bit suspicious of that. Uh, I think it's, that's basically in the nature of our feelings. Feelings are very non-critical uh, of themselves. And they, you know, there's this line from Milan Kundera. It says, when the heart speaks, uh, reason is expected to keep quiet and something like that. 
And when somebody's very happy, you don't tell them that, oh, you know, it's not going to last. But you just let them enjoy it. <laughs> I think it's in the nature of, it's a, it's a good observation about the nature of feeling in general. That's how they present themselves. They are very blinding. And it's, our, it's up to us to learn to look past them, despite that blinding character that they have. Okay, so, so I know that you, you have uh, reviewed Jordan Peterson's new book, and he often talks about ideas possessing you rather than you, you having ideas mm -hmm. and archetypes and stuff. Do you think that this has to do with that, or is this a separate question? Mm, I think we can connect it to, to that idea. That's a Jungian idea, that ideas uh, possess the person. That a person actually participates in an emotion or participates in a in a feeling. If you examine what is involved in a feeling or what is involved in an emotion, we have to describe an environment. And then there's a person in that environment who is who's subject to that feeling. So in that sense, the person is subject to that emotion. And that emotion involves more than the person uh, or the mood involves more than the person. Uh, yeah, why not? Yeah, I, I wouldn't object to that. At least... Uh, I can see how you can defend it at, in some situations. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So previously you said that you don't consider like, for example, Richard Dawkins as a real atheist. Mm. And, um, so, okay. So that means that he is, he's kind of, so I think that, okay. So on, at some level, he thinks that he is an atheist, but on some level, if he would hear your definition, maybe he would he would disagree with himself on some level and still remain uh, remain uh, as he is on another level. So because I feel that sometimes, you know, we feel epistemically indifferent towards a question, but we still choose to believe one thing over another. And, and okay, so that, that would imply that our will is above our beliefs in some sense. Uh, since we are always using active inference and self-evidencing. So, yeah, okay, so if you take Richard Daw Dawkins, how do you think that he, what do you think, what do you think came first? The, the, the self or, or uh, you know, or the idea of atheism? I don't know if my question makes sense. Uh, that's, uh, that's one of those questions that we can, uh, like a chicken and egg problem, we can, we can solve it with that, momentum of that circle. Remember I talked about uh, imitation yeah. and uh, we develop a circle, the student and the teacher develop that relationship and ongoing relationship. We don't know necessarily how it starts, but they develop that circle of imitation. They develop a relationship somehow, somehow something triggers it. Maybe the, the student is naturally able to imitate. We have evidence to believe that people are, people have the natural uh, ability to detect behavioral patterns and, and, and imitate them. And actually imitation is a form of, is in many cases inseparable from perceiving. When, when you perceive and really understand something, we are, we are doing something like an imitation of it. So that something like that momentum begins and then the self emerges out of that, that cycle of perception and imitation, perception and action. Something like that starts interaction with the environment, interaction with other people, and this self emerges out of that. Self is something that comes out. And I'm less interested in, you know, asking 
how much of that self was there to begin with in the, when the person was born or in their genetics? Right? Those are questions we can ask, but I don't know. I'm not that interested in them. I'm more interested in that history. You know, somehow, somehow you're here now. Somehow you are the person that you are with the characteristics that you have. Uh, and I'm interested in understanding the person as a, as a product of, you know, the history, genetic makeup, all of that, all of that for me is one thing, is one person. Uh, I don't want to compartmentalize and dissociate it. In, in some ways that you're, the question is also related to the question of how do you, how do you pick up that first book that, that determines your reading taste? You know, somehow it starts, some of it might be genetically uh, determined or predetermined, some, some of the choice, some of the taste. Um, but yeah, I'm more interested in the product, in the outcome, the, the end result than in that contribution of each side, because I think they interact so intimately, so closely, and they are so incomplete. Each side is so incomplete without the other side that I'm not as interested in separating them. But, but this could have like, it could have uh, theological implications, what, what comes first. And it can sure, also sure. have moral implications, but it's, it's hard to, it's, it's a very, it feels like a, a question that is irreducible. It's, it's very hard for us to, to, to come to a good conclusion. So it's, yeah. And then maybe it would, right. wouldn't help in our everyday lives. It would all maybe, uh, or maybe it would, or maybe it's mainly, you know, a theological thing. Um, Anyhow, anyhow, if you could, if you could choose pre-birth, whether you would uh, want to be uh, born without knowing everything, anything about life, would you say yes or no? Mm. I am sorry to disappoint you, but I can't say a yes or no answer to this question. <laughs> I know, you, I know, you don't like to hear this kind of response, but I actually don't know what I would say. I genuinely don't know because obviously I don't have that choice, and being in that position is so inconceivable to me. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like if you ask me if you had three heads instead of one, three brains instead of one brain, would you still choose to have the one brain instead of the three brains? So in order to answer that question, I have to know how it would be to be in that position, to be in the, in the position of a three brain individual. And this question, the assumption behind this question is also the, the premise, like being out of the cycle of life, being pre-birth, being equipped with the capacity for the decision, having some kind of knowledge. This is kind of like, it's more complicated than having three brains. Uh, so I don't know, it's up to that, it's up to that uh, person being in that position. Hmm. Okay, okay, so, so last question then. What social, social science would you recommend for engineers or scientists to learn? Uh, history, social anthropology, politics, or psychology? That's a good question. Uh, I would say try a little bit of all of them and see which one you enjoy the most. And so it depends a lot on, on you and your own interests and the interests of the, the viewers, the lis listeners who are listening to our conversation now. But I do see certain things as more foundational. I would see, for example, history as more foundational than to politics and social science. History is, um, is, is important because reading history gives you insights 
in psychology and politics, and social anthropology, history contains a lot. And in addition to that, I would add something that you didn't mention explicitly, and that is uh, novels. I know engineers might be a little bit skeptical about this, but great novels are, they, they also contain a wealth of, wealth of insight into human psychology. Uh, novels are so ahead. They are still, they're so much, so ahead of current psychology, current social science, especially psychology, uh, which is my own field. I get, I, I get so many, so many more insights, so much more joy <laughs> in, in respect to psychology and psychological thought, psychological thinking, psychological questions when I read novels. And uh, I don't get the same level of inspiration when I read psychological literature, psychological articles, for example. So novels are also like the great novels, the top hundred, you know, there are lots of lists. So I would say history and great novels. Right. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Professor Goldsby, for, for speaking with me. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure.